there's an amazing amount of unclaimed value that's in the sort of the business world by bringing in weather data and climate data and, and especially historical weather data to be able to create the sort of inputs that, that we're talking about here. Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris. And this month, we were lucky enough to have Paul Walsh join us, who is the CEO of Mediomatics, a weather analytics scale-up business here in North America. We trace through Paul's humble roots as a weather observer and forecaster in the U.S. Air Force, to more recently generating business value and revenue with companies like The Weather Company, Prisometer, which was recently acquired by Google, and much more. If you're looking to hear unique insights on creating value in weather data, this is just the episode for you. For now, on with the show. Hey, welcome back, Jeff. Missed you last month. We had a good conversation with TC Moore, Dan Schreiber. Good to have you back. Yeah, it was actually really cool to listen to the podcast as a listener and not actually be one of the hosts. I realized like just our, our podcasts are jam-packed with so much information and insights from people that, you know, like, well, the, the two individuals we had on that last podcast were Air Force veterans now doing something completely different, not with the Air Force. Um, they're still able to use their meteorology backgrounds to do the forensics types of science and the, the legal stuff and, and do the consulting meteorologist thing. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. I was going to say, one of the things that's kind of cool about this podcast is we catch a lot of people's career transitions. You know, when people go from one type of career to another, I think it may be kind of a hopeful story, right? Because a lot of people in the military and other career fields think, oh, I can't do something different. But in fact, you can, you can do a shift. You can do different, you know, my full-time gig, I do a lot of technology stuff. So it's not exactly all weather and climate, right? So, I mean, you can do some different transitions and things like that. If you look back at our, our, the list of our guests, I think a lot of them are Air Force veterans are connected to the military. Might have so, something um, to do with our network. I don't know. I don't know. It might. <laughs> would that, would that be a bias? Uh, <laughs> Probably. You know, we're, we're open to admitting our biases on this podcast. So anyway, I, I mean, lots going on in the weather world that, you know, in our last podcast, we actually talked about a brewing hurricane forming and it had not even been named and it ended up being Adelia. And we got some pretty good winds and, and storm surge here in our community here in the Western Florida coast. Um, I know you got some good heavy rain there as well. And actually drove, I, I, I went to a wedding the, the week, the weekend after, uh, the hurricane hit, it was actually the day after the hurricane hit and it was up in Oklahoma and Google maps actually took me right through where, where the hurricane hit. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, uh, Google Maps is usually pretty smart these days. Normally it would route me around the issues, but it took me right through Perry, Florida, where, you know, where a lot of this hit right up in kind of the armpit of the Florida Big Bend area. Armpit? It is the armpit. You're going to offend all the people in, the, in that part of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. 
Actually, it's called the Forgotten Coast. It's absolutely gorgeous up there. If you ever drive along the highway, well, you did drive along the highway, but it's uh, it's very beautiful. Uh, all the way up through Apalachicola and yeah, they call it the, and... call it the Nature Coast. Well, this is well east of Apalachicola. I mean, a lot of destruction in, in Perry and those communities there, obviously. Uh, with Adelia, Cedar Key took the brunt, uh, Steinahatchee and uh, Cedar Key. You had one guy like decided to to squat because uh, he needed to protect his community out there. Uh, I mean, communities really need to listen uh, to to the warnings that the the Weather Service, the Hurricane Center has out there, um, and not try and save their community with their presence. But anyway, he got a lot of media press on that. But there's a lot going on. Um, around the world. What, you, what else have you been tracking, Jeff, in the news? Yeah, so, you know, we've done uh, a couple newsletters and um, a podcast episode, weather modification and geoengineering. And uh, actually, you clued me into this one article in Time uh, Online, Time Magazine, and it's called, Some Politicians Want to Research Geoengineering as a Climate Solution, Scientists Are Worried. And the company that's highlighted in here it's a geoengineering startup, Make Sunsets. Um, and they basically, it looks like they have strata, uh, stratospheric blooms and then they release aerosols. But um, apparently there's been some debate and argument over, you know, whether or not geoengineering and releasing aerosols in the stratosphere is a good idea. And I will read one of his quotes and I will not say it explicitly, but it's, it, he literally says like, who gives an F-bomb? And I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly what we were talking about on the podcast of people just taking it into their own hands and going out and modifying the, the, the atmosphere. Um, let's you know, just do it. Let's, let's just, just do it. Do let's it. not there's care a, about it. You there's know? a good so. business case here. We can, we can make good business out of this. Let's just do it. So my company can, can, <laughs> can thrive yeah, without, it's, yeah, you got business people, you got, you know, politicians, you got others that just want to, they want to solve this problem, this, this right. warming climate problem. Uh, and with an attitude like that, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little disturbing. And I go, you know, harking back to our episode of, you know, I, we need to understand this better. Yes, but we need to have good governance. And I think that's, that's the key is good governance. I don't know that we're going to get into any geoengineering in this discussion, but I, this is going to be a debate, and and I think we'll have more more podcasts on geoengineering going well, forward. Well, I, I predict so. I predicted in the last newsletter that people are increasingly going to view the atmosphere as a resource because as it becomes limited, right? So you know, you think back to the when people started colonizing the North America and all of that. There were unlimited resources, unlimited resources. Use the forests, use the trees, use the animals, use all this stuff. Well, eventually, once it starts becoming limited, that's when people start, uh, you know, there's a scarce resource. That's when people start fighting over it. That's when, you know, court and legal cases come out and other things. So I think increasingly folks are going to start seeing the atmosphere as a resource uh, and that's going to require governance. Otherwise, it's going to it's going to be problematic. Um, so have you been looking at the outlook for the winter? I, I didn't pull it up recently. I know the Climate Prediction Center put something out recently, and I know that we've had basically... Um, if you look at NOAA's data, we we are the second warmest so far next to 2016. This is the warmest summer on record global temperature wise. And it's been, you know, El Nino years bringing that in. So El Nino is going to be an impact coming up, right? Is that what you've been reading? Okay. So the current outlook for October, November, December, 
for precipitation, particularly, I always look at Florida, right? I mean, like it's, it's the armpit, right? Right. No, it's, <laughs> come on. This is a cool state. It, um, it looks so, like an armpit, does it not? No, no. Anyway. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, looking at like higher chances of rain, more precipitation, uh, in the Southeast, which is pretty common in El Nino years. However, when you look at the temperatures, often it's supposed to be cooler and we're actually looking at like possibly above average uh, temperatures for the October, November, December timeframe. So looks to be interesting. I know a lot of times El Nino winters bring in more severe weather uh, to the Southeast. So that's kind of a I thing. I think the problem, you know, uh, and we, maybe we'll talk about this later. The problem with graphics that weather and climate folks produce a lot of times is they're not easily translatable they're not they're not easily understood by practitioners or like whether it's the agriculture sector or the energy sector they they would look at something like that and they would say oh the redder the product the more precipitation i'm going to get or the hotter i'm going to get and and no it's just the higher probability that you're going to see above normal pre, you know precipitation or or below normal temperatures or whatever the case is. So, I mean, like there's a really big need, I would say within this field of weather and climate in translating the complex information to the, so what, you know, the decision maker can make a decision based on that information. And it, it ain't, it requires us to be very careful about how we portray information. So anyway. So I had one more thing and then I'll yeah. let you get on to yours. Okay. So I love the new bands, right? Cause it has one, one page articles. <laughs> that's, that's our attention span these days. <laughs> um, so, um, and, and they're not written, uh, that, you know, it's only a scientist. They're written to kind of a more general audience. In fact, actually one of my teenagers picked one of these up in the past and started reading it and was like, Hey, this is interesting, dad. So I think it has a good way. It's a great, good recruiting value, AMS. Um, okay, so no, there's an article in here. It says, first look inside an active pyro CB, which is a, a pyro thunderstorm, right? So a thunderstorm that's caused by wildfires. And so this quote in here was really interesting. And it, they talked about how um, these fires in Canada and Australia, the smoke traveled around the world, around the globe, persisted for months and altered dynamic circulation and radiative forcing across large regions. So this is very similar to what we were talking about with the geoengineering. When you modify the stratosphere, you, you affect the radiative forcing vertically and horizontally across the atmosphere, which then affects the circulations and things like that. And then they said, this class of pyro-CB smoke plumes rivals significant volcanic eruptions when comparing aerosol particle mass injected into the stratosphere. So I'm not necessarily suggesting these are all equivalent because they're different, right? But when you start to see in one segment of our science, people are concerned about these mass injections of particles, but then you have another community that's not concerned at all about injecting mass amounts of particles in the atmosphere. You see, there's a, it's a cognitive dissonance and it's like, okay, let's maybe put some governance in here. Let's actually go off what the science says, not just, you know, who gives an F bomb? Um, so anyway, it, it's it's really uh, it's really I think we're at a very interesting time. 
and I'll just leave it at that. Well, it, and I but... here here's here's the segue I think to to uh, introducing our guest today. Um, so Mediumatics has a, a platform called a Media Drone uh, to do lower uh, atmospheric measurements in, uh, in in the atmosphere above the surface. Um, and so I'll be curious to see if there's anything either currently in the works or you know planned for platforms like the media drone, uh, to help with fire weather, uh, and those kind of things for sure coming up. So let's dive right into it. Let's introduce our guests. We've got, uh, we're happy to have Paul Walsh, uh, on the show today. He's the CEO of Mediomatics Inc, a Swiss headquarters scale up. That is a global technology leader in weather and climate intelligence and analytics, expanding operations in North America. Uh, and that was announced earlier this year before joining Mediomatics. He led the U.S. expansion of Breezometer, an air quality focused business acquired by Google in September of 2022. And prior to that, led the development of the weather and analytics practice at the weather company, which resulted in the creation of the WeatherFX ad tech stack and contributed to the $2 billion acquisition of the company by IBM in 2016. He's an Air Force weather veteran, a savvy businessman connecting the weather and climate dots for businesses and is a leading international expert featured on multiple media channels covering the impacts of weather and climate to consumers and businesses. Paul, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. This sounds like it's going to be fun. <laughs> we are looking forward to this conversation. You've got a background that is wide ranging from your military experience to your business experience. So the first question we, we often ask our guests is, how would you summarize and describe your journey up to this point? Uh, accidental. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, you know, as I meet people in the weather industry or people that are interested in weather, everybody's got their weather story about it, you know, a, a blizzard or a hurricane that, that they experienced when they were in their younger ages. And, and I never had any of that. Um, but when I, the, the only memory I have, the weather memory I have from the early days um, was when I was in fifth grade. It's funny, as you get older, you forget a lot, but there's certain things you remember. And I remember going to Hamilton Air Force Base, which is long closed. This would have been in the 60s. Um, so I'm dating myself here, kids. And as part of the field trip, we went to something, I don't know if it's called this anymore, it was called the the ROS, R-O-S, which back in the day, everybody used to think was remote observation site, but actually means representative observation site. So we went out there and I saw what weather observers do. And I just thought it was kind of cool. It just became a memory that I've always had, but I had not really, I didn't have any ambition to get into the weather field at all. I didn't, wasn't even thinking about it. And where I grew up, I grew up in a kind of a lower middle-class area where people didn't go to college. You just kind of got out of high school and got a job. And I didn't really have any prospects uh, when I was in high school. I was, it was like, it was that 70s show, basically. Um, I was at, with the long hair and the 70s show kind of dude. And so rather than try to find a job, I decided to join the military. And I decided to, with the Air Force just because I figured, man, it's probably, it's probably going to be uh, easier than joining the Army, the Marines, and et cetera. So I, I just, I just, and my brother had joined the Air Force as well. When I joined the Air Force, um, when you join the Air Force, you take a test. It used to be called an ASVAP. I don't remember what the acronym means. I just remember it says ASVAP. And as an, as an enlisted guy coming out, right? Or as a, a young guy enlisting out of high school. And the intent of that is to sort of uh, identify where you can fit or what, what um, AFSC, as I used to call it, that, that you would align with. And the result of my test said that I could be either a firefighter, uh, a radio operator, a jet mechanic, or a weather specialist. 
And I went through that list and I said, okay, I can't, I, I, there's no way I'm going to be a jet mechanic because I can't fix anything. Um, I had a friend I had, that had joined the Air Force who was a firefighter and he said, all he ever did was wash trucks. And so I said, no, I don't want to do that. And so I decided to be a radio operator. And the reason this is, I was 17. The reason for that is I'd saw a movie called No Time for Sergeants with uh, Andy Griffiths, uh, Google it kids. And that seemed like a cool job. They're flying an airplane and talking on the radio. And uh, the person sort of, you know, did whatever it is they did to check. This is before computers are probably looking through a, like a, a stack of paper. And um, it was a woman. I remember this. And she said, I'm sorry, that job's th th that's full. That career field is full. And so just by default, I became a weather specialist, which I found out after I was at the end of basic training. It actually means I'm going to be a weather observer. I had not I didn't didn't even know that. And at the end of basic training, I was thinking about this this morning, my training instructor, we should call him the Air Force military training instructor, whose name was, and I kid you not, Tech Sergeant Fury. So Tech Sergeant <laughs> Fury is going through everybody's like job. This is the job you're going to go to. We're about to leave for tech school. And people were going to be security police or um, aircraft jet mechanics, et cetera. And he got to me and it was like weather special. And he's like, I'm not quite sure what you're going to do. <laughs> That's how I ended up uh, as, a, as a weather person at, at 17 years old. And it turned out I really, uh, I really dug it. And I spent probably the first six years of my career as a, as a weather observer at uh, Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, and then I left. Uh, I was there for about a year. Went to Korea. I was there for a year at Osan Air Base. Met my wife. Got married. <laughs> We're still, we're still married 41 years ago. Um, and then um, I went to McGuire Air Force Base, back to Korea, all as a weather observer. And then uh, from there, I went to weather forecaster school. In those days, it was split. So you had weather observers. In fact, you know, at the early days, you can be, you could spend 20 years in the Air Force or 30 years in the Air Force as a weather observer. And then they sort of they combined the career fields. So, and then I went to weather forecaster school at Chinoot Air Force Base which was another six months or so. Um, and it was brutal for me. It was brutal. And boy, did I struggle through that. Um, that was, that was like my Achilles heel, but uh, somehow I made it through that. And then once we got into the, the actual weather forecasting piece and also the communications and the briefing stuff, then I was like running circles around my smart friends who did really, really good in the physics, but once we, and, and, and the math, but once we got into sort of the, the, the ambiguous part about it, because at the end of the day, you never know what, the weather's going to be. I mean, not that this is any sort of admission, but there's always that cone of uncertainty around any weather forecast. Um, but I just always felt comfortable by ba basically briefing and presenting and, and doing those kind of things. Um, so anyway, that's how I ended up forecaster in the Air Force. And then I spent, oh, I guess the, the second 14 years as a counter weather forecaster at, uh, at Vandenberg Air Force Base. I um, went from Vandenberg to a place called K-16 Air Base in Korea. Spent two years um, at Yongsan, and, and actually that, that was sort of fortuitous because one of the years there, I guess two of the years there, I was the, the, like the TV weatherman on American Forces Korean Network. So I, I got some chops in terms of doing like TV stuff just by accident. And I was the assistant station chief is what they call us that. During that time frame is when uh, Sodom invaded Kuwait, Desert Shield slash Desert Storm. I had an assignment to go back to March Air Force Base to be the assistant station chief at March. March is now, gosh, it's close too. It was in Riverside, California. Uh, this is after four years of army support, going to the field and doing a lot of stuff. So I was really excited about going to a nice, cushy, relaxing Air Force Base. And when Saddam invaded Kuwait, the 101st Airborne Division deployed and in, as well as their entire uh, weather station, 
to Saudi Arabia to prepare for the invasion. But the one person that didn't deploy was the station chief at Fort Campbell because he had an assignment to somewhere else that he had to go to. And so they all of a sudden they needed a station chief. So the person that I worked with at Youngson, who was my boss, who was the station chief, who was down at headquarters at Fort McPherson, the 5th Weather Squadron, said, oh, I know a guy. <laughs> and so my assignment to March, all of a sudden in the summer of 1990, changed to Fort Campbell, Kentucky to go be the station chief which is actually a pretty plumb assignment if you are a, a master sergeant hoping for, for bigger things in the Air Force because it's one of the larger uh, weather stations. I think we had 40 or 50 people and we had a, a special operations weather team and we had a cadre weather team. The problem is that the, the entire division and the entire weather station and the, and the 5th Special Forces Group and the 160th were all gone. So we arrived at Fort Campbell uh, to basically uh, a weather station that was manned by people from the National Guard and Reserves. There was nobody there on active duty. I was there a month, uh, just long enough to buy a house, get my kids kind of in school. They were still young. I had three sons. Get my wife her driver's license because she didn't even have a driver's license. And we're coming over from Korea and she's Korean and we knew nobody. I went off to the desert on a one-way trip <laughs> and joined the division but it took me about a week to join him because I arrived in um, King Fod International Airport, KFIA, they called it. And I got off the plane and with a, a brigade from the Tennessee National Guard um, that was, you know, obviously getting ready to, to, to join in the invasion. And uh, I saw a guy with a 101st arm patch on and I said, I'm here to join the 101st. Um, where, where are they? And he said, Oh, you just missed them. They they left like three days ago. They're 300 miles north. And so that started out this whole journey that was like trains, planes, and automobiles, only it was C-130s and packs of deuce and a half. And I finally made it up to the... So I got there in time for the, for the invasion. What I did do, though, and this is where it sort of becomes relevant here, is that I, I know that I went in right out of high school. And then I was smart enough to get married. And my wife was smart enough to say, you know, you should get a college degree. And so um, I did. I went, I got a, a, a finished my bachelor's at Fort Campbell at Austin P University, go P. Uh, and then uh, at, uh, my last assignment was at McCord Air Force Base and I got a master's degree there. And, and by then I was an E8. I was probably shortlisted. I'm sure I would have made chief if I would have stayed in. Uh, but my wife basically slapped me upside the head and said, you know, you're, you need to you need to get out because there's, there's, there's a limit to what, what you can do here in the air force. And so I did, and I just made the jump and then to connect the dots or whatever it is, my boss at fifth weather squadron, uh, who was just recently passed away. Unfortunately, um, he had joined a startup outside of Philadelphia at the time called strategic weather services, um, which has another long history going all the way back to world war II. And Dr. Irving Crick, uh, he started a, a business that was bought by these Philadelphia business people. Anyway, Bill Weaving, who was this the 06, who was a commander of 5th Weather Squadron, had joined Strategic Weather Services, and uh, he uh, he hired me. And so I got a job before I retired, and I joined two other um, young Air Force officers, young captains, who he had also hired. And the reason that they brought us on was that it goes back to the, what you were talking about uh, just, a, just a moment ago, Ryan, around the ability and the need to translate raw weather information into things that are actionable. And that was the reason that we, we were hired was because that's what you do in the Air Force, is that you translate this data into something that's meaningful and actionable, which is almost a cliche now, but it, it is absolutely critical and crucial to be able to create value from, from data. 
and especially from weather data. So the, the maps that you were just showing, Jeff, in terms of the seasonal forecast, where you got this big giant area that says, I forget what it said, no data or inconclusive or whatever, that helps nobody. And also the other part, even the part that's got warmer than normal or wetter than normal, that also doesn't help anybody. Because what does that mean to, it might mean something to a meteorologist, but to a civilian, it doesn't mean anything that's really actionable. And the data is tremendously valuable, but it's only valuable after you've gone through that translation process. And after you've sort of taken that translation and taken the insights that you've gained from that translation and integrated into an operational system. And it, so it's just a whole different way to think about weather and weather data. And my, my sense is, I was just at the National Weather Association conference um, last week or two weeks ago, and you know, heard a lot of the a lot of the talks and a lot of stuff from the weather service. And you know, no offense to the weather service, the weather community, but there's a lot of hand wringing that happens at these events and, and and discussions around colors. Should we use purple or should we use blue for communicating such and such? There's a whole sort of career field that's and I've only heard about it. A whole of this heard of this career field in the weather space called social scientists. And there's all these social scientists up there talking about all these things that they're studying. And I've been hearing about these social scientists forever. And I can't quite figure out, well, first of all, how do you get that job? And second of all, what, what are they supposed to be doing? So in my world, I would call them marketers. <laughs> and I'm thinking that the weather service would do themselves a great service by bringing in some people that have marketing experience to be able to sort of help sort of with the messaging. Now, sorry guys, I'm I'm editorializing a little bit, but I was just I was just sitting there thinking, listening to these things, and sort of shaking my head, thinking, yeah, how many times can you talk about colors? Yeah, because like while it's cliche, you know, the turning data into something meaningful and actionable, we're still not there yet. You know, um, we still have a very big problem with that, and you know, whether it's social scientists or marketers to to help with that translation piece, it's still very needed. Right. We'll come back to this particular topic in a minute, Paul. Um, I wanted to capture one thing real quick with your journey. So you were in the the Air Force, obviously, military. Mm -hmm. you, yep. you helped translate this information into actionable decisions and stuff like that. What was the sort of key moment, if there was one, where you figured out what this means for the commercial world? So, I mean, we kind of hit, hit on it a little bit, but like, how did you turn that into commercial weather enterprise experience? There's another follow-on question to that, which is regarding, you know, how a company like Mediomatics or any of the other companies you've been a part of, how do they turn that into revenue, quite mm. frankly? How, how has that turned into a, a business? Not just, you know, because a lot of, well, Ryan and I, we, you know, we come from a, a government-based military, you know, um, weather service, right? So where it's taxpayer funded, obviously you can't just spend all the money that, that you want. You have to have to be somewhat cost-effective, but it wasn't, it was less about pulling in a revenue. Anyway, elaborate yeah. if you don't mind on that, that transition yep. that you're kind of like made the connection of what this means. Yeah. A great question, Jeff. And I, I think, I don't think it really connected. I think when I was in the military, I really didn't sort of view the world like this from a commercial perspective. But it was really when I joined Strategic Weather Services, which became a company called Planalytics, which is still doing well in basically 20 minutes from where I live or 30 minutes from where I live, because that's how I ended up outside of Philadelphia. We moved from Accord out here. And we were providing anomaly forecasts, basically. So the, the core product that SW, Strategic Weather Service and Planalytics was providing was 
a map very similar to what you just showed from the weather service, only it was filled in. So there weren't, there weren't any sort of, you know, unknowns. They were all anomalies of temperature or precipitation. And um, when I joined they, they already had some pretty big customers. Um, Walmart was a customer, for example. Uh, Sears was a, was a customer, Kmart. Um, uh, interesting, Sears and Kmart are no longer on both. And I would have never thought in a million years that they would be going away. But uh, the, the, the problem is what we're trying to create was a, um, was a repeatable business. And that, a term you'll hear a lot in the, in the world I live in is uh, ARR, annual recurring revenue. So that's what, and that's what investors want. They want recurring revenue, subscription-based revenue. Well, the problem that we're running into is that we were providing effectively maps and we would maybe we'd sort of, you know, reformat the maps so you would see it in a, in a, in a context that they can see instead of seeing it's going to be colder than normal in the Northeast, you know, a retailer might say, and this specific district is going to be colder than normal. But that doesn't translate into any sort of business application unless you happen to have somebody that's been there for 30 years and they know, I know when it, whenever it's colder than normal, I sell, you know, five times more boots. And by the way, our first customer at Walmart, the one that we were, when I started, was the guy in charge of their footwear and boots, which is highly weather impacted. And so what we basically came to, this, what we, what, where we landed was what we need to translate that weather data into something that's numeric and that specifically relates to what that change in weather is likely to, how that likely is going to change the expectation of how much these retailers are going to sell. And so that was sort of the, my initial foray into sort of weather analytics. Uh, and we literally would uh, receive point of sale data. So weekly point of sale data retailers, obviously they keep all of that data. And then we would download weather data into like a CSV file and do like regression analysis against historical weather and historical sales so that we can begin to get a numeric assessment of how that weather is likely to impact business. And the aha moment came when, as we started to do that, and this is obvious, I mean, when we talk about this, it's, it's obvious, but the, the, the reality is that the effect of weather on consumers, which is a huge part of our economy, is very much a function of where that consumer lives. It's also very much a function of how much money that consumer makes. It's a, it's a function of gender. Um, so it becomes very complex. But what needs to happen in terms of to create a commercial product that is weather-based is you need to be able to provide the ability to not just assess the weather, but assess the impact of the weather using analytics. And that's number two. But number three, and this is where it becomes really important, that insight needs to be integrated into the systems that are running any particular business, whether it's into SAP or any other kind of ERP system, for example, in the retail context. And then the, the weather data itself is input into these broader systems but what it's doing is it's enabling companies to get a better handle on what is my, from a retail context, what is the demand going to be for a specific product for the upcoming week? Um, because if they know that due to the weather conditions, demand is going to be down 50%, they can then adjust their inventories accordingly, or better if they know that their demand is going to be up 50%, they can flow more product in so that at the end of the day, again, I'm giving this from a retail context because I think it's a, a great way to tell the story. But at the end of the day, if you're a retailer and you have product on the shelf when people want it, you're going to make money. And if you have not too much product on the shelf when people don't want it, you're going to save a lot of money. I mean, and we're talking about lots and lots and lots of money. So it's a super big opportunity. And within the weather industry itself, the focus is, especially on folks that are 
like in the weather industry, the focus has historically been on energy companies, of course, agriculture and insurance and maybe cat risk. But there's this whole other component of all these other industries, CPG, pharmaceuticals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, retail that's underserved, I think. And it's underserved because we in the, within the weather industry aren't sort of thinking in this way in terms of the weather data is important, but it's not the only thing. The key, though, is to be able to, first of all, tell that story and educate and make the market, which is a lot of what we're doing here now at Mediumatics, and also provide the ability to access the data. Because the people that are going to make what I just suggest work are not necessarily meteorological people. They're data scientists. There are people that are, you know, in these large, you know, CPG organizations or, or these data science teams with these large organizations that are pulling in the data and that are, that are creating these models, validating the models and then integrating those. And, and there's, there's also consulting firms, et cetera, that do that. And I did that for, gosh, I guess five years when I was an IBM consultant where we would work with large, uh, many different types of industries. One, uh, one interesting one is, which is ironic because now I've, you know, I've, I've worked for a Swiss company. There's a large grocery chain in Switzerland that was using uh, weather data in exactly the way I just described it. Um, and I won't name the company, but this would this was when I was at IBM and I met with their CTO at a conference and they were experimenting with the weather. They actually had a meteorologist on their staff. And this is in Switzerland, but what they're doing is they're correlating their sales to weather, but they're only using the weather data from the airport in Zurich. Now, if you ever looked at Switzerland on a map, you can see there's there's a lot of mountains and valleys and it's it is not Zurich is not representative of all of Switzerland, but that was what they had. And, and they were they were sort of using that to sort of correlate it to historical sales. And they said, yeah, there's definitely is a relationship here. And so when you know when when I when we met with them, it was like, you know what? It would be better, I think, if you use more hyper local data that would be more representative of the the valleys, et cetera, correlated to that. And sure enough. Um, they uh, they did that with our help. I'm sure to this day that that data is influencing their the, their distribution of their products, but it's not something that people necessarily talk about all the time because it's just one component piece. But from a weather perspective, if you are able to make those sort of translations and help companies integrate weather in that way from an analytical perspective, and that data then gets hardwired or built into these ERP systems, then what you're doing is you're contributing to resilience. You're helping these companies be more, more effective and efficient, making sure that they have the products that people need when they need it, making sure they don't have too much so they have to throw the stuff away. And so it all sort of ties back into this ability to create what I call digital resilience, using the weather data, but using it in a way that's different than a lot of weather people think of it in terms of, it's not like a weather briefing. It doesn't matter whether it's blue or purple. It, what matters is that you've got a, a clean data set You've got the best data you can possibly serve up and you serve it up in a way that makes it super easy for people to access the data, whether it's historical, short range, medium range, long range, or even climate scale, which is, by the way, what we do at Mediumatics. So I had to get that in here. <laughs> I want to pull the thread uh, for sure on, on the Mediumatics piece. The, the, real quickly, though, on uh, two quick points, like I was in a grocery store the other day, uh, and that was actually right before the hurricane Idalia was about to hit. And there's all these ads within the grocery store about, hey, this is a really good hurricane <laughs> item. It's, you know, it, it was it was the toilet paper, it was the tuna, it was the the different things that where people are going to stock up. And it was, you know, kind of uh, along the lines, similar lines as what you were just 
you know, well, kind of you, you can go into a Lowe's or a Home Depot like, yeah. right before a hurricane and there'll be, you know, 35 generators <laughs> sitting in the front. <laughs> you know, so. Well, I mean, that's pre-staged. What's really crazy is that, you know, and, and we saw this in the Air Force too, is people or humans that are not familiar with the, the field of meteorology and, and uncertainty and that sort of thing, just think that, you know, like, it, weather is an act of God. It's going to do whatever it does, and I'm just going to react to it. And I think businesses are finally starting to wake up that they can be more profitable if they just incorporate weather into their decision making to buy down some of that risk. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about Mediumatics for a little bit, and, and let's talk about what you know what the company's doing. How does a company, a Swiss company like Mediumatics? decide, hey, we want to stand up a North American offering and what makes Mediumatics the global leader in, in weather intelligence? And maybe if you can give us a few examples of some of the product and service offerings. Sure. And and it's funny, I was just, I was in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago for our, our annual company meeting and Martin, who's my boss, who's the defense CEO and founder, used a term that I actually hadn't heard, but I've been sort of involved in for basically my entire career since I left the Air Force, which is a scale up. So we are not a startup. Mediumatics has been around since, um, I guess it's been around 11 years. Um, uh, Martin, who is the founder, is a you know, PhD mathematician, uh, weather geek, and he started the company, I guess, 11 years ago. The, the business is growing super fast. They, uh, before my time, raised a bit, a bit of money, um, but, um, I guess probably last year. Um, with the intent of scaling up in, in the U.S., uh, you know, because it got to the point now where in Mediumatics has probably got north of 500 customers now in Europe. So it's the, it's the largest weather company that I had never heard of uh, here in the U.S. And so they made the strategic decision that it's time to have, you know, feet on the ground in the U.S. Um, we do have some really sharp U.S. people in that work for Mediumatics that are in Europe. <laughs> but it's hard to do, it's hard to build a business in the U.S. And I've got this weird sort of background now, as we discussed, where I, you know, I sort of helped scale up Planletics. And then I went to Weather Company and started the, the ad tech business. And then I went to Brazometer, which is an Israeli company, and they hired me and we got, ended up getting bought by Google. So I ended up getting this sort of weird reputation around, you know, helping businesses sort of grow. And so that was how um, they ended up contacting me. And ironically, it was during the time frame where we were in the process of being acquired by Google when I was with Brazomba, which is an Israeli company. So I had to keep all of that obviously on the download, but I may, you, you never burn bridges. And, and I really like Martin. So we just kept up the discussion and, um, and things worked out. So that's how I ended up here and it started in, in April and now we're up to about six people, I think in total, um, and, and really starting to, to get ramped up. So there's, there's three layers to it. And when I first started looking at Mediumatics, I, I, I saw that, you know, there's a, the, a lot of discussion around weather API. And I was thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of weather APIs out there, you know, including free weather APIs you can get from the weather service, et cetera. But as I drilled down and I got a better sense of what, what was actually there, um, there's three layers to this cake. So the, the, the base layer is not just the API. The API is a delivery mechanism, but we've, we've created, I'm used in railway because this all happened before. I didn't know, I had no hand in actually developing this technology, but is very similar to, directionally similar to Google Earth Engine, where with Google Earth Engine, they basically brought together all of the, uh, uh, or, or a lot of like satellite imagery in, in one place and make it easy to get to for, for data scientists to pull the data. Well, Mediumatics has done the same only with weather data. So within our platform, we've got, as I mentioned before, historical weather, you know, every kind of weather data you can think of, as well as all of the model data you can imagine. And 
made it very, very easy to access this data via this technology they developed called the Meteor Cache. And the Meteor Cache, don't ask me technical questions about it, but it makes it so, so like dead easy that somebody like a Luddite like me can go in and I can get historical weather data. I can literally pull down in one CSV file data for my location here uh, in Downingtown, PA, going back 30 years and going forward 90 years. So they've meshed together all the models and basically have curated it in such a way that it's the same format and it makes it easy whether you're getting data from Germany or Switzerland or the US or anywhere in the world. Um, and it really facilitates the ability to pull the data to run the analytics that you want to run. One of our clients, one of the things that we've been doing, because we've got about 45 or so clients here in the US. So as part of our my own onboarding and also the onboarding our folks, I'm having them reach out and, you know, meet our customers. And, and what I'm hearing from at least one guy in specifically, he said the platform, and this is a meteorologist that works in an energy company. He said the ability that our platform saves him about four hours a day because he's not going all over the map, trying to find, pull down data, look into the weather service. And he's got all the data right there. And then he can take the data and integrate it. So be, at the end of the day, it's a facilitator to help uh, larger companies. I'm going to say larger companies only because I think that's where the value is, not that it's a super expensive product, to begin this journey to do the things that I had just talked about, to do the analytics that we need, to do the analytics that Walmart did 20 years ago, where they learned that in Florida, whenever there's a hurricane forecast, they were stocking out of strawberry Pop-Tarts. And they use that information to make sure they had enough strawberry Pop-Tarts. So it's not just generators, it's also strawberry Pop-Tarts. And also prepared chicken at public. That was something I also learned as well. Um, and so that that's the sort of the base platform. Now, sitting on top of that platform, uh, MediaMatics has developed something that we call our, our one kilometer forecast. Jeff, don't ask me any hard questions about the mathematics behind this because I number one, I couldn't answer. Number two, if I did answer, it would be wrong. But uh, the one kilometer forecast is live across Western Europe. It basically runs a one kilometer forecast. So every hour we're pulling in data and then um, satellite data, radar data, observations, et cetera, and then, re and then reprocessing it and pushing it out. In Western Europe, we've got an instance of it set up here in North Dakota, and I'll explain that here in just a second. And then we're doing some other POCs with large um, uh, partners um, in different parts of the world. Um, and so that's running now. And then the third piece, the, 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 the sort of the cool factor that we have is the, uh, is the media drones. And the meter drones are something that's been developed um, by, by our team over the last four or five years. Is I, I want to say it's probably the only commercially available uh, meter drone or, or, or drone of, it, uh, uh, of its type available today. And it's literally, it's, you know, it's a, it's a Raven sound sounding. So basically you get a, a sounding from, from the drone. Um, we've got four media bases set up that are live in Switzerland and the media base is I, I sort of equate it to uh, SpaceX and how SpaceX, you know, they, um, they'll launch a, a rocket and then they'll land it on these platforms. Uh, the media base basically is where the, the media drone flies autonomously up to, uh, currently we fly up to six kilometers and then it lands itself and it's all operated autonomously by a pilot that's sitting behind a computer. Um, we are, by the way, going to be, we just got funding over the next year and a half. We're going to be extending that up to about 10 kilometers. So it's going to be, uh, and and we're can continue to do that, um, and so that that's sort of a cool thing. Now we we had the drone at the National Weather Association meeting a couple of weeks ago, and it was a big hit. Um, and we had some really really good meetings with um, with our friends at the at the National Weather Service. So we're hoping to bring those out across the U.S. 
Uh, I mentioned North Dakota. We actually have our first instance of a media base set up and, and running operationally at the Grand Forks Air Force Base, in fact, right next to Grand Forks. Adjacent to Grand Forks, there's a, a, a basically, a, I guess, business park is, a, is a, a good way to describe it that does a lot of sort of research with uh, with drones. Anyway, they've, they've acquired the first uh, media base in the U.S. and they're flying it. So that's happening all the time. But, you know, back to the modeling and the 1K model, the intent is to, and we're actually doing this in, in um, Switzerland, is we're pulling the data from these drones that we're flying into that 1K model. So the vision is you know, over the next X number of years that 1K model is distributed in, in broader geographies. We'd love to be, and we actually are looking at the U.S., you know, over the next, say, one to two years. Um, but also continuing to deploy the media drones to continually feed the model so that we can get progressively better in terms of our ability to precisely predict the weather at a very at a very localized geography and of course if you think about the way the world is going with autonomous vehicles with with drones there's an increasing need for increasingly hyper local and increasingly accurate weather forecast data and i think where this is going to happen is within the commercial world and, and so that's kind of where where we are with that. So when you put all this th- all those three things together, and, and and I mentioned before that platform that we've got, which is both both a data platform as well as a, a graphics platform, which is fed by this media cache technology, um, all of that 1K model also sits within that platform. So fast forward three years from now, there'll be companies that are pulling in our data, creating analytics, integrating that into their supply chains, et cetera. Um, and hopefully also be using this hyperlocal data so that when you're sitting at home and let's say you've got bad allergies and maybe a large drugstore chain will basically flag that this location and these people um, who are patients, or maybe it's maybe it's a, like a large healthcare company will understand that in the next three days, these patients are going to need to make sure they have enough of their inhaler medicine or, or whatever. And if they don't, we're going to reach out and tell them. Um, and by doing that, by reaching out and tell them in, telling them in advance that they need to go to their local drugstore and pick up this medicine if they don't already have it, they're going to do a couple of things. One is they're potentially going to avoid uh, emergency room visits and think about the the heat waves that we just that we just went through this past summer and how uh, the, the bad health impacts. Um, and also for the, the drugstore chains, they're going to make more money because our people are going to be coming in and buying. It. And it's all going to happen in advance of the bad event that's going to be happening. And then you can extrapolate that to almost any sort of you know, consumer activity uh, or business activity, uh, all of which drives the economy. So the, the application of the integration of weather analytics into systems like we're talking about is a massive thing. It's a massive thing. It's bigger than discussions about what color we should have on a map. <laughs> It's, it's, it's bigger than most, I think, a lot of weather people think about. And, and just one last point to go back to my time in the Air Force. So in the Air Force, when I was in the Air Force, we were always sort of the redheaded stepchild on every base, especially on an Army base, because we were, we, in those days, we were, uh, the organization was called Air Weather Service, and we had our own command structure, and we didn't report into the base, and we kind of became sort of siloed. Because we weren't part of the of the broader of the broader organization, and at the end of my career, we sort of that sort of all went away, and then I worked for the Operations Support Squadron Commander at, at McCord, and we came became more integrated. I kind of get that feeling now within the weather community now that it's kind of insular. 
And it's kind of not like it, it's not connected into these sort of non sort of obvious weather impacted industries. Um, and with, with the changing climate, with the kind of events that we're seeing now with the increased population, ex increased exposures, it's super important to be able to do the kind of integration I'm talking about. And it's also very profitable because if you're, if you're better at making sure you have enough strawberry Pop-Tarts in Walmart, you're going to sell more strawberry Pop-Tarts. People are going to be happy. And if you don't have to have too many strawberry Pop-Tarts, you can reduce the inventory. You're going to save on the carrying costs. So it's, it's a, it's a win-win, uh, but there's this transformation that has to happen over the, over the next couple of years in terms of mindset. I was at a, my, one of my kids was working at a market in our local town on the street. It's like a, a craft fair market. And, uh, you know, everybody's got all their crafts out there. They're the food vendors. Besides the point that this one person wanted to charge me $20 a turkey leg. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's not the story, but like there was a, a store owner that was undercutting all of the vendors for water bottles. So you'd go outside. It was like $7 for a water bottle for, <laughs> from one of the food, you know, things. But this other person that was like, all right, I'm just going to charge a dollar a water. I mean, he was like selling them like hotcakes. <laughs> anyway, because he had good intel. He could have, he probably well, could have sold them for five and still. He probably could yeah. have, but he was like, this is just wrong. That's a good story, actually. So I, this is really super intriguing. I've been typing notes over here, uh, Paul, because you've said some things. I mean, we've had quite a few guests and we, we get into the commercial business stuff. Over time, you know, I've been... Um, I've been trying to understand. I, I'm kind of a, a scientist person and, and also very interested in how the business world works. And I've been trying to understand this industry, this community I've been in for decades. How, you know, how does it work? How does it really work? I mean, I know what we did, right? Because we, we got pretty decent at what we did, but like, how does it work more broadly? And some of the things that you specifically highlighted are really intriguing that the idea of actually integrating into the decision systems to help actually affect the change. I mean, we talked about it a lot of times in the Air Force, but we weren't always very effective at actually integrating into the system, right? Like we got the information up to a human oftentimes to make a decision, but not necessarily the data integrated into their, their decision tool, if you will. You know, right. I mean, it, it started to happen. Um, and I, I've been out for a little while, so I don't know exactly what's going on right now, but it was, uh, so that's, that's really intriguing. Um, yeah. So maybe this is where you're going to go, Jeff, but like, how do you break into that, Paul? I mean, like, so I see on, you know, Mediamatic's website, the likes of Honda, Tesla, Energy Company X. I mean, like there's a, there's a lot of big names there. And obviously you mentioned, was it uh, 500 companies in Europe and that sort of thing? Like, so mm -hmm. How, what does it take to break into those businesses, so to speak? And how much, how much does it take to have someone on that, on, in that business that is kind of a innovator as well, um, an, an early adopter, if, if you will, to bring this in? Because th this, there seems to be a historical kind of reticence to like, ah, it's just weather, it just happens, you know, weather happens and that yeah. sort of thing. Like, how do you break into these markets? It's a, it's a really good question and it's really core because on the one hand, it's obvious that, that you know, the weather is going to impact people and it's going to impact people differently in different regions. 
But on the other hand, actually doing the work, making the investment to not just buy the data, but actually to translate that data is hard. And what I, I've been doing here, what I did at, at Resometer, what I did at Weather exactly was, was help to basically tell the stories like we're talking about here so that the light comes on. Um, and so somebody will see it and say, you know what, that's a great idea. We should try X, Y, and Z. The example I gave you um, around the Swiss grocer where they were experimenting with, with weather data, they, you know, they just, they, they knew they wanted to do something, but they weren't quite sure how to get from point A to point to point Z. Um, also, I think within the data science community writ large, they don't have a good understanding of the complexity of weather data. So it, it's important to have somebody that's got a little bit of a little bit of knowledge here. So what, what we're doing at Mediumatics, what I did at Resometer, really at, at Weather as well before we got bought by IBM was sort of, that's why we're doing a lot of the, the or, or I specifically do a lot of the, the press that we're doing. It's why we're, you know, whenever we, whenever we get a win, we try to make as much noise as we can as possible about it because it's, it's really about getting people to get to the understanding of what we're talking about here is that there's, an amazing amount of unclaimed value that's in the sort of the business world by bringing in weather data and climate data and, and especially historical weather data to be able to create the sort of inputs that, that we're talking about here. And you start a little bit at a time. And I think it's one of the kind of things that's going to go really slow and then all of a sudden it's going to, it's going to, to take off. And, I, and I'm, you know, somebody's been doing this for, you know, since 1997. So it, it's been going really slow, <laughs> but there's big things that have been happening. You know, IBM acquired the weather company for, you know, north of $2 billion. You know, we sold um, Brizometer for an undisclosed amount, but it was, it was a lot. And so there's, there's this gradual sort of, you know, movement towards it. The way we specifically work and, and my strategy even here at Mediamatics is, is to start small, um, work with companies, help them better understand how to, how to access the data, how to use the data. I'm kind of taking a page out of my, my time at Google where, you know, Google wants to is looking to sort of create developers that will use their data, help them develop products with it and then consume their data. You know, at heart, you know, what, what I want to do is I want to sell tons and tons and tons and tons of data to people. And the way you do that is you help them create value from the data and use more of the data. And therefore, they're going to be making more money from the data as, as, as we are as well. But to get to that point, you have to, you have to lean in and you have to sort of help them understand that there's a bigger prize out there than just simply looking at the weather on your, on your phone or selling advertising against it. There's, a, there's this, this whole strategic value piece. I'm curious, just real quick, and Jeff, I, I know you got a burning question, but I'm really <laughs> curious to hear your thoughts, Paul. Like, so IBM bought the weather company, but then like just this year, actually, just a few months ago, sold it, sold it back off, except for, you know, they, obviously they're keeping a lot of their data rights. They, they want to focus on IBM, I think made a public statement that they want to focus on the artificial intelligence work. And so they're going to use the goodness of all the data that comes along with it. But I mean, to me, that signals the value of the data, just what you just said, and that that IBM sees the value in the data, but not necessarily like the apparatus behind it necessarily. Do you have any thoughts on that recent sale? I do. I don't. I, I don't know any sort of details because I've been gone for for quite a while. Um, when we were acquired by IBM, um, the CEO is Ginny Rometty. 
um, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of interest in sort of using the data in kind of the way that we described. And for for the first couple of years after being acquired, we were kind of like the shiny the shiny new object. Ginny finished up her tenure. There's a new CEO. There's a, a basically a new focus of the company. They sold off. Uh, I think the IBM there, there was a there was a health part of the business, and so they basically basically are sort of streamlining the business. And really, at the end of the day, I think you know a big part of the revenue was coming from uh, weather.com, um, and that doesn't really fit within. Again, this is this is my opinion from the outside looking in, but it doesn't really fit within the sort of broader portfolio of what IBM is doing. And so I think That's basically that that piece they're selling off or have sold off or in the process of selling off, but the data itself they're going to keep in some form or fashion. So they see the value in the data, but the you know, the, the media side of it just doesn't really, I think, again, my opinion doesn't really fit within, you know, you don't think of an IBM and, you know, a consumer app, which is what the weather, yeah. weather.com is. And it, it generates a lot of revenue for sure, but if it just doesn't fit within, within yeah. that platform. The, the data value proposition here, I mean, that's, that's what Jeff and I talk about a lot. Jeff, sorry, I know I stole the microphone for a little bit. <laughs> no, there. no, no. That's, so there are... I feel like we could literally talk about this all day. So I don't know where you live, Paul, but maybe we should <laughs> meet and talk. So I'm going to take you a slightly different direction. And I, I understand you're not necessarily a, a weather modeler, so I'm not, or the technical guy, but I just, at a broad strategy level, I am curious what Mediomatics's computing strategy is. Like, so you're a Swiss-based company, so Europe. Are, are you in the cloud? Do you have your own data centers? How are you uh, organizing your compute and, and a lot of the technology behind the company? And, and obviously you don't have to reveal proprietary stuff, but just as a general strategy, okay. what are you, what are you working on? Yeah. I don't think we have to worry about me revealing any proprietary stuff. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not <laughs> smart enough to know any of that stuff. Um, but I do know that we do not run in the clouds. We have high performance computers. And I think, you know, from what I've, from what I understand, it just was because of the, the, the compute necessary to do the level of work that we're doing. It's just, it's just too hard to do in a cloud. It takes too long, costs too much money. And so it was just much more efficient and effective to do it on high performance computers. So we've got high performance computers set up in, I think in Germany somewhere that, that, that is running that, um, it's as you know, it's a lot, there's a lot of math. <laughs> that, yeah. And yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of cycles that have to run to be able to compute out of one kilometer resolution every hour, bringing in all that data. It's kind of mind blowing. Hey, listeners, if you're a fan of the Triple Point podcast, we've got something special for you. By subscribing to our free newsletter, you'll become a Triple Point fan, gaining access to show notes, email notifications for new episodes, and early peeks at extended content. But if you really want to dive deep, consider our paid subscription. Not only will you get everything in the fan tier, but you'll also receive full transcripts for new episodes, exclusive access to our Triple Point Business Intelligence Portal, and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us deliver top-notch content. So head over to triplepointpodcast.com and choose the subscription that's right for you. Your support is invaluable to us. Well, Jeff, we've talked about the vertical, the importance of vertical integration with companies, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in this field, right? And I mean, like this, I mean, Mediamatics kind of seems to fit that mold where you've got that weather and API layer, that foundational layer, the yeah. one kilometer um, model that that they run and then the media drone. I want to I eventually, I want to talk a little bit more about the media drone, but 
Yeah, let me, one more business related question real quick. So what, and this ties with the vertical integration stuff. So how does a small business or a small entrepreneur get started in this field? Like we talked about the vertically integrated, like if you can run your own models, if you can, you know, like some, some companies run all their own models, collect their data, you know, you've got tomorrow now that has its own satellites, you know, you have a number of companies. It seems like there's a trend towards becoming more vertical in the weather stack, right? There's a lot of data out there from public sources, but like, how do you see small businesses coming into this space? What would be your recommendation to them? Well, the, I think the first thing, if, if for somebody that was going to, that's going to do a startup, it needs to be a, a focused on a very specific use case that they're solving. I forget the name of the company, a very interesting company that's got a, like, it's like a weather insurance company where, where they're selling insurance that's weather triggered that will sort of offset the cost you pay for a vacation if it rains every single day, which seems like a simple thing, but they seem to be doing really well. I think it's weather sense or something like that. And that just seems like a really smart business that they've focused on one thing. They've got a, they've got a, a, a strong business savvy. And we talk about integrated, you need to have, you know, smart people like, like you guys that can do the sort of the, the modeling and create the back end sort of tech stack and the science in terms of what you're doing. But you really, really need to have people that are sort of, you know, business development and marketing people to sort of open up the business, to create the value around the business. It's one of the things that we did really well at Resometer is that, and I think that was that, that Google was impressed by was how we were able to not just create this data, but actually monetize it and monetize it in a way that was scaling and monetize it in a way that there's recurring revenue associated with it, which then it, it hits the, on the valuation of the company. And so if I was to start a small business, it would be to try to find something, this is going to sound cliche, but find something that leverages the, the very rich data assets that we currently have. And the data assets that we currently have are really amazing. I mean, going all the way back to, you know, the hurricane forecasts that we're, that we're seeing, they're freaking accurate as hell. Days and days and days in advance. Maybe there's a little bit of a zig and a zag and it gets sort of misrepresented by the, by the media, but they're really, really accurate. And so the gap is how do we take that data and create something that's going to be meaningful, but that, that uses the data, but isn't the data isn't front, front and center. It's just a key sort of piece of the data. And so there's just, I mean, and, and in terms of people that want to do a startup in this space, in the sort of the climate tech space, I think the investment market is slowing down a bit just because of the uncertainty and stuff in the economy, but it's going to continue to be a hot sector. There's lots and lots of really good data out there. A lot of the data, as we talked about before, is free. The, the problem with the free data is that and it, it requires a layer on top of that that will translate it, that will make it actionable, and that will help people use it. One of our sort of big value differentiators, even as we're working with meteorologists, is the fact that we've created a platform that makes it like dead easy for you to get whatever data you need. And it's already pre-formatted and you've got you know, connectors to Python and all the tools that you need. So you don't have to spend time looking at all these different sites and then create your own thing. If I was 20 years younger and I wanted to, to start a business, I would, because I think this is a great time, a great time to do that. But the key is just finding what is the problem that you're trying to solve and only solve that problem, but do it in a way that no one else has done before. You know, obviously the data is there to use, to leverage, and the weather service would lo love nothing more to than to have many, many startups leveraging the data that they're producing 
so that they can talk about all the value that they're generating. And by the way, they are already generating a ton of value. I think that's another thing that the Weather Service could probably do a better job of, and I'm sure Ken Garrett Grant would agree with me, is just getting the word out in terms of, you know how valuable this data is? You know how much you know, how much revenue that we're generating? Yeah, we've referenced a study at some point, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, we referenced a study like way couple episodes ago about the value that the weather service did. You remember that? Uh, right. It was one of the, I mean, it's like a year ago, like six billion, six billion dollar industry that right. I mean, like, well, I think it was more than that, but yeah. No, I mean like the value, I, I mean, I used to call, I, I, when I would led the air forces climate center, I would, I would call our historical climate database a treasure trove for that reason. Like there's like totally. untapped reserve of, you know, there's so much you can do with just historical weather information, let alone a historical weather information on top of a 1K model for certain regions where you're running it, uh, in, in addition to like, so the, the media drone. Um, we talked about the vertic vertical integration. I think it's an interesting kind of analogy here because we're talking about, you know, a, a vertical sounding, you know, with the, with the drone kind of platform. How did that materialize? Like, how did what was the problem that Metamatics was trying to, to, to solve? What's kind of the history and the background of that? And what are the some specific applications and, and uses for that outside of your internal use of the data feeding like your 1K model, for instance? Oh, you mean the uh, from the, the media drones? The media drone, yeah. Well, the founder story, I guess, of the, of the media drone is that uh, Martin, my boss, is a private pilot. And he basically was, uh, I can't remember if he was unable to land or if he took off and all of a sudden found that he had a problem because there was unforecasted fog. He's like an innovator and he, he always tries to solve problems in his head. And he said, well, you know, if I had a better sense of the lower, the lower level of the atmosphere, maybe we can make the forecast better and it wouldn't screw up my ability to do a, a VR flight, VFR flight in my, in my Cessna. And that, that sort of just triggered the idea of, of a drone, of using a drone. And they basically started to, so I guess, I don't know the exact time frame, maybe four or five years ago. They started experimenting and slowly but surely started building these, these things up to the point now where we've got, you know, it's a, we've got a commercial product. And uh, interestingly, this is kind of full, full, full circle for me. One of our customers is a Special Operations Command, U.S. Special Operations Command. And they've acquired a bunch um, I don't know how many they've bought actually, um, but it's, it's quite a few, seven to eight, I think. And I haven't asked them what the use, what the, and they would probably wouldn't even tell us what the, what the use is, but you can just imagine the importance of having that sort of lower level, uh, information as it relates to airborne operations, as it relates to artillery operations, all of which are super important. I think of firefighting and when there are large firefighters in California, et cetera, et cetera, it takes a long time as it turns out for them to be able to order like a, a Ravenson balloon or even a Pybull. And so to have one that they can bring out there and actually fly up and get the lower level atmosphere, atmospheric information becomes super important. Of course, we've got some universities that are using these as well. Um, we're going to be at AMS this year, by the way, and we'll have one, uh, certainly. We tried to at the NWA, it was, it was kind of late. We were late in the game of actually going out there, but we were, we looked into potentially flying one while we were there because that would have been like super cool. But it just didn't. It just didn't work out. But we did have one, and we'll be there in force at uh, at um, AMS uh, uh, showing it off. So there's many, many uses for it beyond simply uh, as an input into the model. 
Now, I will say certainly here in the U.S., we've got some we've got some limitations that we're we're going to be working through over the next couple of years. Just regulations like with the FAA. You know, if you've got a, a drone flying up to thirty thousand feet, you've got to have uh, the, uh, the the sensor, the ability to communicate. You know, otherwise you'll you know some F fifteen will shoot it down. <laughs> they do go they go really fast though. They go really fast and they go, they come down really fast and they go straight up. I'm literally straight up and straight down. So they don't, they don't have that balloon drift. You know, the, the balloons are obviously expendable. They're not super, not super expensive, the balloons for the weather service. But, you know, it's also like, you know, a, a small environmental hazard with the balloon. So it's, to me, it seems like a lot of upside to the meteor. I look forward to seeing you at AMS and uh, getting a chance to take a look at the media drone because I'll be there as well in a, in a few months. Listen. Awesome. Yeah. The other thing that well, I, I didn't realize this, but helium is, uh, is increasing. Helium is a problem. Expensive. I guess it's a shorter yeah. helium. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what I understand, I understand it's like four or $500 a day to run two soundings per day, or it might be, might be four or $500 for each sounding. There's a lot of cost associated with it. Yeah, it is fairly expensive. Yeah. Yep. And the drone, the, the media drone, basically it's uh, obviously it doesn't use helium. It's at least on the media base, it's it basically self charges. So it goes straight up, straight down yeah. and you can run them every hour. And so the cost it's, it's, is way more cost effective actually than, than running, yeah. uh, than running regular zones, but it's just going to, it'll take us, it'll take a minute to get them. <laughs> yeah. You got to get Boy. the regulation in place, but I would think one selling point on the regulation is now you can, you can almost guarantee a smaller radius <laughs> of airspace impacted, you know? Yeah. Um, Rather than the balloon. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, sure. I, I think, well, I guess it would be more like a cone than a <laughs> big sloping cone. Yeah. So this is, this has been a fascinating conversation, Paul. And, and I, we, we didn't touch a, a, a several areas, including, you know, the, the work that I know that y'all are doing with the, within the energy sector and that sort of thing. But this has been a great conversation on, on the value of weather uh, within the commercialization um, how you break into, you know, some of these commercial spaces, the three different layers that Mediamatics has in terms of data uh, with the API, the Euro 1K model, and then the, uh, the media drone piece. So I really appreciate you joining us today, Paul. But before we leave, we, we like to end our show with uh, three quick lightning round questions. So Jeff, you want to kick us off with the first one? Yeah. What's the most memorable weather event in your life? I would say Hurricane Sandy. And, and and the reason I say that is I was actually, I was with Weather Channel at the time. We were part of NBC Universal was one of our owners. So I was actually forward deployed to CNBC headquarters. And I spent two days doing, uh, doing segments uh, on CNBC and actually spent the night at CNBC headquarters. So they brought out a bunch of uh, air mattresses. And so we, uh, so I, I got to see all of the CNBC talent in ways that probably a lot of people haven't. Beach or mountains? Then um, we just had a hurricane story, but beach or mountains? Well, I, we we uh, have a place down near Bethany Beach, so I guess uh, Delaware. So I guess beach would probably be, but I, I like them both. But uh, I do like the beach, so I would say beach. Yeah. All right, and then uh, what is your superpower? I think we picked it up. It's uh, scaling and starting growing businesses and stuff like that. But what yeah, would you say it is? I, I would say it is, and I would also say that everything I learned about scaling and growing businesses I learned in the Air Force actually and through you know 20 years and running weather stations and all of those kind of things um in fact i would take it one step further and say everything i ever learned about business i learned in the air force certainly about leadership and 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 so uh, all of us that come out of the air force we have a we have a leg up i think and i guess of the other service as well but 
Sure, I enlisted side, just professional military education. You know, I went through all of those levels, um, and it was just great. There's, there's skills that I use every single day um, that I gained from from the Air Force, and you can see by all my accoutrements out here, all my Air Force flag, the the writing over here. This it's right. actually the Chinese writing of the famous Sun Tzu quote about you know know the ground, know the weather, yeah, victory will be total. Yeah, if, if I turn my camera, you'd see all of mine. I don't want to mess up my connection. <laughs> yeah, I have it all. You're holding the Yeah, I've got my love me wall too over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this has been a great uh, conversation, yeah. Paul, and, and and it's I, I love how we come full circle to where we started this conversation with uh, your, your background coming up through the Air Force. Thanks so much for joining the Triple Point Podcast, Paul, and uh, wish me to Maddox, uh, you and me and Maddox, all the best of luck in the business world ahead. Awesome. Awesome. And, they, and, and watch the space. Um, there's going to be some interesting things come out over the next couple of months. It'll sort of, sort of illustrate what I'm talking about in terms of the integration piece over here. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point Podcast. If you liked it, subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com. Give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time. Have a great week. I've done several of these, and this is probably the most organized that I've done. Well, we like to hear that because it's a side hustle for us. You said it's the most organized. We'll ask you that question at the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. That's the fun of podcasts. They can and should be freewheeling.